playing. Appreciate it very much. The candy drawer is right up here if you want some candy. Okay. Book of Acts, chapter 2 is where we're at, so find your place in the book of Acts. How many are actually carrying a Bible this morning? Actually got a Bible. Okay, that's good. How many have got it on the, uh, good. How many have got it on the phone? That's good. You just have to make that paper rustling sound when you tr flip there in your phone. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Last Sunday we started uh, Peter's powerful sermon, but by way of review, and I like to say this, we are taking a slow walk through the book of Acts. We're taking in all the sights, like we've gone down a trail that we've never been on before, and we're going, oh, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. How many have ever been to uh, uh, Yellowstone? You've been to Yellowstone? Yes, very beautiful, very beautiful. I remember going there in the upper and the lower falls and watching all that massive water go over those falls. It's just beautiful. And as we went there, we're taking in all the sights. I remember watching as we were driving down the road and we saw elk and we saw moose and we saw a lot of bears. And I remember we were at one place and my mother was amazed how the bears were coming right up to our car, not knowing that my older brother Jimmy was tossing out lemon drops to them. So uh, he got in trouble to say the least. But uh, we're taking in all the sights in the book of Acts. We're taking in all the sights. We want to learn from its history. We want to learn and make sure that we know what it takes to be a true New Testament church. We want to make certain that we are continuing to walk in the apostles' doctrine. We don't want to stray off what this book has for us. And as we're doing all these things and we're taking in all the sights, we're allowing God to speak to our hearts and make application in our own life. It's not just a matter of coming to church and listening. It's a matter of coming to church and listening, hearing and responding to God's call as he prompts you in your heart. The Bible tells us in Romans 15, 4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. That's where we are this morning. So last week we began to review this powerful sermon by Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And we discovered and understand and know from his preaching and teaching that Christ is the promised Messiah. We made note that Peter, as he preached this powerful sermon, was not doing it in his own power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. God enabled him, empowered him to preach this message. And the point I wanted to make last week, and I hope I did, is that that same power is available to us because we have the same power, the same Holy Spirit as was given to the 120 on that day. So as we get into this, uh, we'll just go ahead and I'll read a few scriptures here, uh, beginning at verse 22. Make sure I'm in the right place, y'all. Ye men of Israel, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Didn't catch God by surprise, it's all part of his plan. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I'm going to pray. As I pray, you ask God to work in your heart and life. By the way, 
Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in their midst. God is with us today. So praise him for that. Father, we're at the time where especially we need you. We need your instruction. We need your Holy Spirit guidance. We need your teaching. We thank you for the preservation of your word. May we learn to use it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we're a King James Bible church, but it does no good to be a King James Bible church if you don't read it. You might as well read something else. Just follow the book here. Verse 22 says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. We're getting into a kind of a description of Peter's message here. Peter boldly proclaimed the saving name of Jesus. There was no excuse for rejecting Christ. No excuse for rejecting Christ. Christ had presented his credentials to the whole nation. Countless miracles. Actually, there are 36 miracles recorded in the New Testament. That's almost one a month if you figure three and a half years of ministry. Three and a half years. During the days of Moses and, during the, uh, and Joshua, during the days of Elijah and Elisha, during the days of uh, Daniel and his friends, there were miracles that were going on. But this was a new time. There was no miracles that were being done like the miracles of Jesus. Never before had they seen anything like it. 36 miracles, we said. That's, some of the miracles were, oh, the uh, water to wine. He walked on the water. Uh, he healed the sick. He cleansed the leper. He raised the dead. And yet, when you go back into the book of John, uh, chapter 21 and 25, it says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Jesus did miracles. There was no excuse for these people, Peter was saying, that they could not recognize him as the Messiah. After all, he was approved of God. He fulfilled all the criteria needed for the Messiah. He was born of the tribe of Judah, of the family of David. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem, out of Egypt. God had called his son as he lived and foretold and died and rose again as prophesied. There was no excuse for unbelief, Peter's telling them. No excuse. The story of Jesus was known throughout the entire land. Jesus, though, was a rejected Messiah. In verse 23, it says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And then you drop down the second part of that verse where it says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Talking about man's guilt. You see, men crucified Jesus. Men crucified the Christ. That's the most wicked thing ever done upon this sin-filled earth. That men would kill Jesus. They had done it. Their hands were stained with the blood of Jesus. There was no escaping their guilt. They had murdered the Messiah, slain the very son of the living God. There could be no greater guilt than that. Boy, Peter was not mincing words. He was making it plain. 
He goes on, we see that Jesus was a resurrected Messiah in verse 24. It says, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It's not possible. It's not possible. If you were to stand here and listen to an atheist or an agnostic, uh, and you were to tell them about the resurrection of Christ, they would say, it's not possible. It's not possible. It's contrary to nature. It defies natural law. It never happened. They'll say it was a lie that was propagated by the, the disciples who obviously took the body of Jesus and then faked an empty tomb. Not possible. You know, it's interesting to note that God takes the same position when confronted with the unbelief of men regarding resurrection. Scripture says, God that raised him up because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Praise God for such a glorious, divine impossibility. It was impossible for God to leave Jesus in the tomb. Praise God. Praise God. It was impossible because he was sinless. Impossible. But the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus did not sin, so obviously he could not die, and yet he did die. He did die. He died because he was made sin for us. Because he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us. Christ paid the debt of our sin. He suffered the extreme penalty and discharged our debt. The Bible says it was not possible that he should be held by death. The resurrection was part of that. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Back in verse 23, God has provided us a paid in full receipt. Don't you love those paid in full, full receipts? I can remember years ago, the family, it was the day after Thanksgiving, we had family down and we all went out to breakfast. I think there was close to 20 of us there. Uh, we're a big clan and we all like to eat. And it almost becomes a competition of who can eat the most. And we're sitting at this restaurant and we had breakfast and uh, it was a nice, wonderful time of rejoicing. Got up to go pay the bill. And the waitress said, uh, that gentleman getting in his truck with his son just paid that bill. Just paid the entire bill. You know, he's just rejoicing in that a family was together. And praise God, what a wonderful thing to have happen. But that pales to when you understand and know that Jesus paid our debt on the cross of Calvary. It's paid in full, paid in full. What a message to proclaim to the guilty multitude who stood there on that Pentecost morning. What a message that we should be proclaiming to the world today. Verses 25 through 36 talks about confirmation of what had happened. It says, verse 25 says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. In Psalms chapter 16, David, as he's writing this, he sees Christ risen and ascended. Now, if you go back to Psalm chapter 69 and Psalm 22, you see him where he is on the cross. But here, it must have been a puzzle in chapter 16 to the Old Testament saints with its reference to death and its preservation for corruption from the grave. Why? When you are buried, what happens to the body? It corrupts. 
It corrupts. How could the Holy One of Psalms, the Beloved One, the Messiah, possibly die? And how could he, if he could die, how could he escape the inevitable corruption that would come upon him? How could he? But he did. Like so many of the other prophecies, suddenly it all became clear. Psalms chapter 16 had a literal fulfillment, and that's what Peter is doing. He's bringing an Old Testament scripture here to prove his point. The recent resurrection of Christ fulfilled the prophecy to the letter. It didn't just hit it, kind of, or got close. It hit it to the letter. I remember watching uh, golf. There was a, it wasn't a real tournament, but it was where some of the golfers were playing, and uh, they were playing against one another. There was four, and I believe this was Lee Trevino. How many know the name Lee Trevino? Okay. And Lee Trevino came up, and uh, he hit a shot, and it went in a hole. And they said, man, that was a good shot. He goes, well, that's what I was aiming at. That's what I was aiming at. You know, I was trying to get it in the hole. Not close to the hole, get to the hole. Prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. And it was a stunning blow to these people as they stood there that day on the morning of Pentecost. Peter's telling them, you've crucified the Christ, the Messiah. The glimpse of the resurrection of Christ had fortified David's soul and made him strong. He would never be moved because the Lord could never be moved. Amen? Amen. Cannot be moved because my Lord cannot be moved. It made him sing where he said, Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. David was a good singer because he was a good seer. He knew what was coming up, what was going on. You know, there's nothing like a glimpse of heaven. When we get a glimpse of heaven's viewpoint, to put a hallelujah in your heart. Amen? Puts a hallelujah in your heart. To know that in Christ, God has conquered not only sin and Satan, but the grave as well. Should cause joy bells to ring in our soul. By the way, do you have a hallelujah in your heart this morning? Do you have a hallelujah in your heart this morning? How is your singing? It made David sing. Praise God. Praise God. Moreover, also, my flesh shall rest in hope. The primary reference is to the body of Christ laying in the grave, lying in the grave. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. I mean, you know, I... Uh, I don't know of anybody in this earth world that's ever lived outside of Enoch and those that were taken on Elijah into heaven that has not faced death. It's appointed unto man who wants to die. Guess what? I'm going to die one of these days. Uh, that's okay. My home's in heaven. Praise God. Don't miss me. Just come see me. Okay? But Jesus knew that he was going to be crucified. He also knew that he would not see corruption in the grave. And he would rise again on the third day. On numerous occasions, he had told his disciples this. He would warn them of this to come. As man, as God-man, Jesus' confidence was in the word of God. He believed it implicitly. Do you believe God's word implicitly this morning? By extension, the truth that was David's is ours also. Where he said, my flesh shall rest in hope. My flesh rests in hope knowing that one day I will be with Jesus in heaven. 
Why? Because Christ's resurrection, get this, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee that we will be resurrected. We will be resurrected. Verse 27 says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The word leave is literally forsake or abandon. At the death, the Lord Jesus Christ committed his spirit to his Father in heaven. His body was now being touched by loving hands that tenderly anointed him with costly ointments. They wrapped him in linen and they laid him into rest in a tomb that was made for a Joseph of Arimathea. After that, he went down into hell, into Hades, and the prison for departed souls. You know, he did not go there as a victim of death. He went there as a victor. That's what Jesus did. That's where he proclaimed the triumph of the cross. That's where he said he led captivity captive in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Christ remained in those regions for about three days and three nights. As the Bible says, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40. And then on the third day, as he had proclaimed so many times before, he came forth in triumph. And he could declare, I am he that liveth. And was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. The title Holy One is used about eight times, I believe, in the New Testament. In the book of Psalms, it's used 21 times. 21 times. The Holy One. It's used by David. And it guaranteed that no corruption would taint by taint, I mean spoil or contaminate, would taint the Lord's body during this time. That, of course, was another miracle. We kind of gloss over that. But remember in John chapter 11, where Lazarus was sick, and they said, my brother's sick, would you come? And then he got there four days after he died, and they said, Lord, had you been here, he had not died. They knew they had the power to heal. Of course, we understand that Jesus wept as they mourned. He did not weep because he didn't think that he wouldn't see Lazarus again. He was weeping with those that wept. Martha, when Jesus said he's going to call forth Lazarus, Martha cried, by this time he stinketh. Why? His body had corrupted, was corrupting. Lazarus had been four days in the in the tomb. He'd been buried with equal care as to how Jesus would be buried. The grave's corruption, however, never touched the body of Jesus. David had his facts correct. And I remind you that Peter's preaching this to these people that crucified Christ. And he's using Old Testament scripture here. His facts were correct. His eyes had been opened to see the resurrection of Christ. And the fact that fact became the basis of his faith. I have a question. Is the word of God the basis for your faith this morning? Is the word of God? Well, you say, well, of course it is. Well, then why don't we follow it? Why don't we follow it? Verse 28, thou hast made me to know, thou hast made me known 
I'm sorry, let me try it again. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Here's the order. You have facts. Then you have faith. Then you have feeling. We've got it backwards, don't we? We go so much off of feeling. So much off of feeling. You know, you need to understand that when you just base your life off of feelings, that a woman, one moment you could be in the height of delight, and then the next you could be in the depth of despair, if that's the way you live your life. Your life uh, live your life in faith, based upon the facts of God's word. Jesus went to Calvary and to death, facing a time of anguish unparalleled, unparalleled in all the history of the world. Yet it was for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Can you imagine the joy that was set before him, the death of the cross? And we cry and complain because we have a particular discomfort. I cry and complain. I've had this surgery and I ache across my back and my shoulders. And I complain. I, oh, God help me. God help me. David entered into the goodness of that. It blessed his own soul. We can too, can enter into that. Now this was the second great point of Peter's sermon. He was confirming that Jesus accurately fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecy concerning his death, his burial, and his resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And what is he doing? You see what Peter's doing? Like we see around here, he's using God's words. Using God's word. Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he was, is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's going back, he's still in uh, Psalms chapter 16, and he's explaining this prophecy. Obviously, when David was writing Psalm 16, he was not expecting the fulfillment of that to be him. And if he had, well, uh, he'd have been mistaken. But we see that David died and he experienced no resurrection. He experienced no resurrection. In fact, his tomb was a place of attraction in the day of Peter's day, still is today. Because these truths were not fulfilled in David, they had to be prophetic. And that's the point that Peter is making. David did not fulfill this, so this has to be prophetic. And if it's prophetic, then it needs to be fulfilled. And if it's going to be fulfilled, in whom but should it be filled but by the Messiah? Those that listened to Peter as he quoted this passage, they understood that it was messianic in its scope. They understood the content was prophetical. It was a prophetical message of the coming Christ. See, the crowd that Peter was talking to, they knew their Old Testament scripture. They knew their Old Testament scripture. And Peter knew that these people can argue with me, but they cannot argue with God's words. You cannot argue with God's words. That's why we use God's words. That's why we hide it in our heart. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn it with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. Peter was now going to draw out of Psalms chapter 16 some things that must have 
gripped the heart of David as he had written this, failing to understand it, most likely would go back and read it time and time again. We find and understand that one of the descendants of David would be the Christ, the Messiah. Can you imagine that? Of my loins will come the Messiah. David was enough a prophet to recognize that. He understood the essential fact that the psalm referred to the son that would be born in his line one day. The Messiah would be David's literal son. Wow. Peter was now fencing in his listeners. It's kind of an old term. I, I used it fencing uh, when talking about the Lord's table here a few years ago. Basically using scripture to prove your point. That's what he was doing. That's what Peter was doing. He's going to raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. The throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. God had swept aside Paul, and he ushered in David. And from David would come the Messiah, who would sit on David's throne as David's son, but also David's Lord. Wow. This has to be fulfilled literally. It's not set on that throne yet. We, we, we dare not believe the one and not the other. They have, go hand in hand. Peter's logic was irrefutable. Irrefutable. And he was kind of herding his listeners into a corner. This is where I'm taking you. This is where I want you to get to. I want you to understand this. He'd already shown that Jesus was the promised Messiah. David's promised son. But Jesus had not sat upon the throne, even though he'd been born a king of the Jews, Matthew chapter 2. He'd not been born in a palace. Matter of fact, he'd not even been close to a palace or near David's throne. The Jews had killed him. And they said, we will not have this man to rule over us, Luke chapter 19. And they handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. And he died a death of shame. He was crowned, but not with a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns for you and me. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Oh my. Oh my. They despised this man who claimed to be God. And when Pilate had written his title and said, and nailed it to the cross, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Oh, they rejected that. They didn't like that either. Christ had been crucified, not crowned. So how could he be David's sovereign king, his Christ? Had prophecy failed? How could he sit upon David's throne? You see, the, resurre the resurrection was all part of that plan. That was the driving force of Psalm chapter 16. David had seen it, now they must see it. And Peter's presenting this to him. You need to see this. You need to understand this. You've crucified the Son of God. You've crucified the Savior. You've crucified the Messiah that you've waited for. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Boom, boom. Step by step, Peter has brought them to this point 
And now he's got them in a place where they must accept that Jesus was the Messiah, foreseen and foretold by David. It's a fact. There's no contesting that fact. They had crucified him and God raised him up. That was a fact. There was no contesting that. Why? Less than two months before, less than two months before, they had crucified the Christ. And then Christ rose from the grave and then walked around. Proving that he had risen from the grave. Matter of fact, Peter said, I've got 120 witnesses here <laughs> if you need them. I'll tell you what, if you ever have to go to court and need to prove something, it's always good to have an eyewitness account. Amen? Peter had 120 of them. 120 of them if he needed to. If he needed to. Verse 33, it says, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he had shed forth this which ye now see and hear. See, the coming of the Holy Spirit was the crowning proof. The crowning proof. Jesus was not only alive from the dead by the power of God's hand, but he is now seated on the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The, whole, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had been prophesied by Joel. We talked about that last week. And it was the proof that Jesus was now seated in glory. He was the one who had sent the Holy Spirit to usher in a new age of grace. A new age of grace. Think of it. Instead of sending wrath down from heaven, he sent down his Holy Spirit. Praise God. Verses 34 through 35. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Peter followed up with another scripture, verse of scripture. Oh, this guy, he just uses the Bible. Isn't that great? That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. You shouldn't go into church and hear a social gospel and talk about all the things that we should be doing in our society but we should preach God's word, preach God's word. And he said, followed up with another verse, another prophecy from the book of Psalms when he quoted from Psalms 110 verse one, which declared, clearly declared the deity of Christ. He's God, he's God. No Hebrew father would call his son Lord and yet David did, and yet David did. David acknowledged that the one who would be born in his royal line would be his sovereign Lord, his sovereign Lord, deity. Now he had ascended into the heavens to sit at the right hand of God, something that David had never done. This truly, Psalm 16, was prophetic, was prophecy of the Messiah. And Peter's using God's word to tell and explain, you've crucified the Christ, the Messiah. And now what was the Lord of David doing? He was sitting at the very pinnacle of power. He's waiting for God to make his foes his footstool. You know, those that crucified this king, our God, the Messiah, they will be judged if they persisted in the rejection of him. And they had all done, what they'd done is interesting, is they simply fulfilled David's prophecy by their actions. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of 
Israel, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you ever have the opportunity to speak or preach God's word, do it plainly, do it powerfully. Do not mince words. Let it be laid out there. You see, they had crucified him and God had crowned him. They had entombed him. God had enthroned him. They had cast him out. God had caught him up. They had executed him. God had exalted him. That's how Peter summed up his first summer. Very powerful. Next time we meet and get into the book of Acts, we'll talk about the results of this message. This message. But Peter was saying that Jesus, whom ye have crucified, is both Lord and Christ. He was the Messiah. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Wow. Wow. Peter spoke with such power. He spoke with such boldness. Amazing. Amazing. I'm sure, like myself, I'd have had the opportunity to sit and hear some messages preached that just had the power of God wrapped all around it, over it, and through it. Oh, how I desire that when I speak. Not for me, but that God might be glorified, that his will might be done and had. But Peter spoke with such boldness. And yet just a few weeks before, when confronted by these same Jews, they said, that's one of his followers. That's one of his followers. Peter denied knowing him. I don't know that. I don't know. I know not the man. In fact, he even cursed. Book of John, chapter 18, tells us. And yet here he was able to preach this message with such power. Something happened. Something happened between that moment when he denied Christ and this message. Well, it didn't happen at the crucifixion. That came and went. It didn't happen at the resurrection. Although they were excited to see him and they spent those 50 days with him. That was wonderful. It didn't even happen at the ascension. Where did he get this power? Acts 1.8 says, and you shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you. The power of God was upon his life. The Holy Spirit. That same power as we have the same Holy Spirit is available to you and I today, to you and me. I just have a question. Are you preaching Jesus in power as you walk for him? Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. God, I'd ask at this time that we would simply respond to your calling and your will. If someone's here today, Lord, and does not know you as Savior, we ask that today would be the day of their salvation. Perhaps someone needs to follow you in believer's baptism. Perhaps there's a, one of your children that's battling a sin. Dear God, may it all be taken care of at the altar. Because, Lord, we know that whatever our need is, you have the fix. 
We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please stand with me.